Stop what you're doing. We got new content on the way. I need you to stay tuned. We got a new interview coming up. It's about to be fire. About to learn something you probably never knew before. Stay tuned. Dubs Club up next. Boom, boom, boom. Let's dance in style. Let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait. We're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? All right, I'm here with Stephen Weatherly, um, activist, NFL player, investor, former Vanderbilt football player, now Minnesota Viking, and this is Dubs Club. How you doing today? I'm doing great, doing great. Yourself? I'm doing good. Just had a workout, coming back, you know, eating the good food, trying to get the body right. I feel you. I'm doing the same. I just love my workout as well. Good. So I'm kind of like in this process of creating and doing things where like that are kind of fun. So, you know, I take pictures, I do pictures, I do videos, I do videos, but I came across podcasting. It's kind of fun. And, like, the kind of vibe that I'm going with recently has been, like, a before-they-were-famous type of vibe. I mean, I'm not saying that you aren't famous now, but you haven't really blown up to the potential that you could get to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, most definitely. That's where you're coming from. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on this ep- episode of Dove's Club just to, you know, I know you're kind of like, you're not really an open book, but if someone asks you a question, you're definitely going to tell them. So I kind of want to start this off like I do every other interview. I just want to know like a little bit about your background and how you got interested in football and this, that, and the third. Um, well, I mean, you know, but I guess talking to other people out there, uh, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, was always athletically gifted, like blessed by the big man upstairs. So Beyond uh, ever since I was, I was young. Uh, it's always been baseball, basketball, football, year-round. Uh, it was just me and my mom, and she kept me involved in all sports, no matter what. Um, and so what happened was, uh, I was young, I was playing with some friends before they had uh, Pop Warner practice, and uh, the coach came out and saw me uh, not being touched, because we were playing tag. Right. And then uh, my friends went over there to practice, and the coach came out and was like, hey man, you want to come out here and, and play football there? I've never played before. And I was like, well, well do, do you know anything about football? I was like, no, not really. I was like, do you want to hit people? And I said, coach, I don't, I don't like to be touched. I have the perfect position for you. You know, I, I said, what's that? He said, running back. And I was like, well, what do you do? He's like, we're going to give you the ball. And your job is to not get touched. And so that's, that's how it all got started. Right. So I actually started off playing running back. I was faster than everyone. We had a 28 toss and 29 toss. Two back in the eight hole, which is outside the tackle. And on the right side and running back to the left, outside the, the left tackle. And that's, that's all I ran. And then it, it was until uh, high school, I actually started to play defense. And uh, I realized it's better to beat a hammer and not nail. Right. So that's where it all started. So, like, I mean, how was that transition when you first started? Because, I mean, you, were, you, you come from offense. Not a lot of offense players can go and play defense. How was that transition? Um... It was tough. It was tough. One of the things that got questioned a lot in my younger years was my toughness overall and my and my ability to, to perform um, and, 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 and be aggressive and be that linebacker and be that in-your-face type of guy. I mean, you know me more than anything. I'm not the one to, to say a lot, but when there's time to do what we got to do, I do it. Right? Exactly. So yeah. um, that was my biggest thing, trying to convince other people that I was ready mentally. And it wasn't until I decided to stop trying to prove other people that I can do it and just play for myself and my family and the people that have been there for me since day one. That's when my game started to elevate and go to a whole new level. And that didn't happen until college, late college, too. Mm-hmm. So, that's dope. 
Uh, I want to know about your like your recruiting process. How did that work? Were you a big time guy, like mid level? I mean, you played um, ball in Atlanta, and they got some some ballers down there. So I don't know how that went. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to North Atlanta High School for three years, and then Charlotte High School. And so for the A system, uh, it's changed now. Uh, I was in a three A out of a five A school while I was in high school, so I was middle of the tier. But um, we were playing against pretty good football schools that had people that have gone D1. Uh, and the way it came out was soft, freshman year I started, we're number 56. I was like 6'2", 150 pounds, no lie, playing defensive end for varsity. Uh, straight speed, don't touch me. I'm running around, go up the field, make a left-hand turn was my pass rush move. <laughs> and then uh, sophomore year came around, I was 6'3", 160. I also wrestled that year, and that's when I started to take a little bit more serious. My, my strength started to come along. I was still clearly a beanstalk. And then um, I went to Vanderbilt. No idea. I had no idea what Vanderbilt was, where it was, the prestige that came with it until I was halfway there. And uh, my mom was taking me because my high school coach, Coach Montgomery, who's still a big part of my life, uh, just was with me down in Atlanta when I had a big birthday party. Uh, he said, you should take your son to Vanderbilt. I think that's a good fit for him. Went there uh, the summer leading into my junior year of high school as a linebacker. Right. Uh, and we made the switch. My mom actually made the switch when she was signing me up. She didn't put defensive end. She put linebacker because she saw that other kids were going there who were much bigger than me. And she thought that I would be overlooked because of my size. But I was a long-range linebacker. So I went there. And the only thing I did was cover drills. No one completed a pass to a tight end, and that's what put me on the radar for Coach Bobby Johnson, um, or Coach Johnson, who was the head coach before Franklin. Right. Um, they put me into the office. They talked to me. My mom had actually left and went to go watch a movie because she believed that if I had seen her there, I would have got nervous and messed up. Well, when she came back, all the coaches were all in her face, like, your son's this, your son's that. Hey, coach wants to talk to you, so on and so forth. Um, going to my junior year of high school, and I'm balling, balling, balling multi-sack games here or there. And it wasn't until we went to Vanderbilt for a uh, for a, uh, a game, and it was a recruitment game and stuff like that. Went, uh, one of the coaches pulled me to the side and pulled me out of line um, and pulled us into Coach Johnson's office, and I got my first offer. It was from Vanderbilt. Yeah, wow. right? and so uh, I didn't know what that meant. Do I have to do something else? Is there another process? Or does this just mean that like I'm officially on the radar? Do I tell people? Can I tell people? Uh, my mother cried, um, and it wasn't until I under fully understood what that meant that I had successfully taken a big burden off of her plate, which was figuring out how to pay for me to go to school. Right. I had taken care of that, and my mother no longer has to worry about that. My second offer was Western Kentucky. Uh, the coach came into the school to offer me, and then after that, it was just a. Uh, it started to just flow. Uh, ended up having like over like forty something offers from all conferences. Uh, like, Georgia didn't offer me. Alabama didn't offer me. And those were the only two SEC schools. Uh, like, three ACC schools didn't offer me. The rest did. Um, a lot of Big 12, Big 10 schools. Uh, no, like, two Pac-12 schools. Stuff like that. Right. And so, uh, that's how it all started, recruitment-wise. Yeah, so do you, like, thinking back, looking back on it, I know this is probably going to be, like, a tough, maybe a controversial question, but do you ever, like, regret going to Vanderbilt? Do you think you could have developed and gone somewhere else and been this, like, an even better football player or person? Um, and that's, I, like, I, people ask me that, and I always, immediately, I want to say, no, nah, I wouldn't go back. Just because of the things I had to deal with off the field, 
being at Vanderbilt and, and being in that culture and being in the Vandy bubble and having to deal with microaggressions and so on and so forth and just overall stupidity and ignorance from students and just the community in and of itself. Right. But at the same time, going to Vanderbilt and me doing what I had to do has put me in position and it's opened countless doors, doors I haven't even acknowledged or opened yet, mm-hmm. all because Vanderbilt's at the top of my degree. Right? right. So at the end of the day, I would re- I would definitely have my children go to Vanderbilt because it opens doors for you. And I would just have to say, you're going to have to toughen it out, build some character. It's better for you in the long run, but you might have to go through a couple of things that may be uncomfortable as a, as a young African-American male or female. Right. So I know you personally, and knowing you from like when I first got there, I mean... You were a cool dude. You had your dabbles. You did this and that. But I saw you evolve so much more over that next year and a half that you were there um, from the Project Safe House and working there to, you know, just being an activist and helping in the community. How did all that start? Was there always like a, a passion inside of you for helping out the community and helping those in need or what? Um, at, at some point, um, my mom had told me that you're, you're not just like my son. You're not just the, the kid that everyone knows is being super athletic. You now have a platform. People who you do not know are listening to you. They're watching you. They're seeing how you how you move, how you interact, how you handle yourself on a day-to-day basis. So it's up to you to, to use your platform, even if it's only 100 people, to influence them to do better and by leading by example. And um, the way I got to the, the Project Safe Center was through uh, – uh, the director at the time, and I was just interested in saying, like, what does this mean? Um, and just asking questions, and then I seriously thought, like, that is something we need, and I think that was outrageous. When she sat me down and she explained to me the raw numbers behind, like, uh, uh, numbers of, like, uh, sexual assault, people going through relationship violence, people going through stalking, bullying, and harassment in general, uh, that's absurd, both male and female. Right. Um, and then how it's handled by universities and, and by people and stuff like that. And just, there's no one really there for the, the young person. You're anywhere between 18 and 21 and 22, and something's just happened to you. And based on your life, it's the most disruptive thing to happen. And there's not many people in your corner. People need to know about the, the tools they have, the things at their disposal to help them get back in track and take back control of their lives. And so that's how I got involved with that. And then just healthy relationship building um, with the One Love Foundation. I also gravitated towards that because I feel like everyone should be properly informed on what it takes and what it means to be in a healthy relationship to help you and your partner both grow and become better versions of yourselves. Okay. See that. But, you know, you, you said something about, like, your mom saying that, you know, there's people watching that you don't know and the people that are watching you are watching you even closer. Does that kind of make you nervous to be yourself? Like, because, I mean, now, I mean, back, I, mean, I don't know. Because nowadays, if you do something and it's just, like, a little bit off, like, you say one bad word, you know, you get the most scrutiny from anybody and everybody. That, like, did that kind of pressure make you nervous to be yourself? Um, that's a good question. Sometimes it used to more than... More, more in college than it does now. Um, but that, that goes to, that's a perfect example of like W.B. Du Bois' double consciousness. And so just, once again, going to Vanderbilt and having to deal with that and being under like a super microscope by everyone there. And like, you are the representative. It's unfair, but for a huge group of people. 
um, that scrutiny and that pressure has made it easier for me to be up in Minnesota just being myself and knowing that, like, it is what it is. Um, it, it was just something I had to get used to that, like, people are watching, and it's up to you to put your best foot forward, and it will be stressful. Sometimes you're going to want to cry. Sometimes you're going to scream out it's not fair, uh, and it's okay. It's normal. Uh, but what's important is that you get back on your feet. It's not about how many times you get knocked down. It's about standing back up and living your life to the best of your ability. Right. I agree with that. I mean, everyone has different ways of coping. And um, me personally, I, I write in a journal. I've said it a million times in different podcasts. How does Stephen Weatherly, Stephen with the PH, how does he cope with all this scrutiny from people? Um, I have two dogs. Okay. So your and dogs I, were your stress relievers when you, did you know they were going to be a stress relievers when you got them or that just ended up how it played out? I knew because I, I love animals so much. And I knew as soon as I got one, I was going to need another one so he could have a best friend to play with when I'm like busy or uh, traveling away in the dog center and stuff like that. Right. Um, I knew they were going to be stress relievers, but then I also had music playing the piano. I have things to keep my mind off of it. Uh, the stress and the rigors of being a professional athlete now uh, but back at Bandy, I had uh, the, the music class I was taking, piano, beginner, and intermediate piano. Uh, I had the Project Safe Center, which is something to take my mind off of school and football, whenever either or, or maybe sometimes both were really getting to me. Right. I felt down in the dumps. It was just important to be able to put my effort, my mind, into something else productive to de-stress. Because if I didn't have those ways of, of coping with it, whatever I found, I know for sure I would have done something. And I would have been like, well, it is what it is. And it probably would have spiraled. But I found healthy ways to, to deal with that, luckily. Yeah, see that. Okay, so let's talk, let's, let's move into the NFL. So, I mean, would you say you had a, a very dominant career at Vanderbilt? Or, like, was it so-so? Can you explain your career at Vanderbilt? Uh, I was more of a Swiss Army knife at Vanderbilt in the sense that, like, whatever coach needed, that was for me. And so if we needed someone to go and play on the field side, that's what I did nine times out of ten. I was always to the field to try to keep guys or keep teams from going to the wide side and force them to the boundary so we had an extra defender over there. Right. Um, if I had to drop, I dropped. Um, very rarely was I told to, to pass rush, right? So my stats were never gaudy. They were never like, oh, my God, he's this. But I was definitely someone that teams had to account for, right? The athleticism, the size. And I have, like, one Vanderbilt record, which is most TFLs in a game. Versus which, Tennessee. Which is? Uh, I think it's seven. Wow. Okay. So that was versus Tennessee, my second to last year there, at home. Oh, I, so, I remember that game, actually. And so, yeah. and uh, But other than that, that's how it was. Whatever coach needed, that was me. And uh, it was all about just being the best person for Vanderbilt at that time. Yeah. Um, you played under, like, what, three head coaches or two? Two. Two. Uh, Johnson retired during my, when I was a senior in high school. And uh -huh. Franklin came in and re-offered me my, uh, uh, I want to say second semester, but, like, the second part of my senior year in, like, I don't know, like, February or something like that. He just said, basically, you, have a, you still have a scholarship here, and I definitely want you to come here. So I was a part of uh, Franklin's first like real recruiting class mm -hmm. when you come in as in that position you have to uh, adopt excuse me uh, you have to adopt the class from the previous coach so I was a part of Franklin's first uh, 
through like going through a whole year at Vanderbilt when they went to the uh, uh, I think it was the uh, AutoZone Liberty Bowl and lost. Uh, the next year, then we went to the uh, Music City Bowl and won, and then BBJA Compass and won with Franklin. Right. How does, uh, okay, you played under two different coaches. You played with Coach Franklin and Coach Mason. But how many defenses did you have to learn and defensive coordinators did you play under? Um, Coach Shoup with, with Franklin, that was fun. That was easy. That was, that was good. Yeah. Um, especially the defensive end. And then, um, uh, Kodo? Was it Kodo? Coach yeah, Kodo. it was. It was. Uh, that was that was interesting. Um, didn't really understand it, but knew it. And then uh, uh, Mason's defense, he took over his D.C. my last year. Yeah. How so was three, three quarters. Do you think playing those three different styles of defense has prepared you for your life today as a professional football player? Yes and no. Yes, because... I've had the opportunity to play out of position that requires way more thinking and way more understanding of a whole defense. So I played linebacker. Right. And at one point my last year, I was making checks and audibles and calls based on what the offensive formation was. And so I had to know everything about our defense and then know about our opponent based on game planning for that to happen. Now that I'm in the league, I play defensive end. I, <laughs> I go straight. I go left and right, and every once in a while, I go back. So super, <laughs> super simple now. So I'm, I'm mentally, it's, it's a lot easier for me to, to understand and, and execute the things. Um, so, yeah, having the, being a, a second coach on the field uh, in Mason's defense my last year definitely helped me uh, understand a NFL playbook. Okay. So you went through and you, you were your, the Swiss Army knife, as you would call it. You did everything, and I can attest to it. You really did. You're very, very intelligent, knew the entire playbook. You knew what safeties were doing. You knew what the far corner was doing. So you do all that. And now it comes down to the next level. Um, so what happens with that process? I mean, did you, did you want to go right away? Were you scared to, you know, put your name in for the draft? Like, how, how did you feel about that whole process? Um. At that time, it was, it was pretty much, I knew uh, at some point, midway through the, my last season, this, my time at Vanderbilt has, has come to a, and then it was time for me to get up out of there uh, one way or another. And so um, at that point, it was all about just putting my best foot forward and going out there and, and playing, playing the game, doing what we got to do. Um, I don't know this, but before we went to Tennessee my last year, we were like the number four defense in the nation. Yeah, like most statistical categories. And then when we went there, we didn't do so hot, and it dropped us down to like top 20. Yeah. But before then, we were we were a dominant defense. How We were losing games 6-3, Like, we weren't getting blown out by any stretch of the imagination. We were, there were tight games, uh, losing by a field goal, uh, usually, right? right. So we, we were doing it. Um, but nah, I just got going out there and making sure the Black Death defense were doing what we do, we could do, what we should do as a defense, which was stop or at least do our best to stop the opponent's offense. And then when it came time to declare, at that point, like like a teammate, like now we have Jalen Holmes always says, take Ben Bay. There ain't no need to be nervous on Sundays. You already put in the work. It's just time to go out there and execute. Right. So that's how that's that's what my mindset was when I came out. It was like. 
the film been out there. Now it's time to just go out, go to this combine, do what I know how to do, run, jump, underwear Olympics, and hopefully a team thinks I'm, I'm worthy enough of a pick and that happens. Yeah, I mean, you did well at the combine. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you weighed in at, what, like 267, 265? Mm-hmm. And ran uh, four, six, four, five? Four, six, zero, forty. Yeah. Laser. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It, that's that's really like unheard of. It's freakish type shit. But you did really well. How does like what was the pro? I know I keep saying what was the process, but like what happened after the combine? Like, did you have workouts? Was your phone blowing up? Like a lot of people have this misconception that you know after the combine, you know, people are always hitting you up, you know, and you, you you're flying everywhere. This, that, and the third. I mean, realistically, unless you're like a first or second round pick, you know, your phone's not really like jumping like that you know can you explain that whole that whole process after the combine and what you did um yeah i actually i think it's it's from what i understood from talking to guys that went early like our first round pick that year uh laquan and uh, a second round pick mackenzie alexander and talking to other guys i trained with at the time who eventually got drafted high and then we went back and trained at the same place the next year they they pretty much knew where they were going pretty early, right? And so, like, they had talked to people. They had conveyed a message being like, yeah, we, you fit really well into our scheme. This is how we're going to use you, so on and so forth. For me, after the combine, because I had gone, and once again, went to the combine, I was the heaviest linebacker there. It was very clear that one of these things is not like the other, and it was the 6'5", 270-pound uh, dude over here. Right. And then he ran a 4'6", right? And then he... He benched 23, and right. then he brought it this, jumped that, and, and did all these other things. Now you, you have this 6'5", 6, 6, technically, 267-pound uh, dude who's testing in the top five with all these other guys. It's like, how is that possible? Let's put him on our radar. So after the combine, I had a lot, a lot of workouts at Vanderbilt and then a lot of uh, visits out to teams. Um, I think I had, like, maybe eight or nine private workouts with teams and then probably the same amount, eight or nine, maybe 10 top 30 visits. One of which was the Vikings. They did not work me out, but they brought me out for the top 30 visit. Okay. Huh. I didn't know that you had that, a top 30 visit with them. I just, I always saw you out there working out with teams. I didn't know about the top 30 visits. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. So, like, uh, you get there, you, you're starting over at the bottom of the food chain again. Is it, like, is it the same dynamic as, you know, a college locker room? Or what's the difference between a college locker room and an NFL locker room? Um, it's not, it's not clickish. So when I try to describe it, I'll take, oh, like, oh, they hang out with them or they hang out with them. Um, but there, there's, there's definitely a, a very good sense of maturity. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of laughs. There's a lot of immaturity. And, and, and in and of itself, we, at least at the Vikings, have a lot of fun. So, like, we play jokes on each other. Like, it's very, like, a, a good atmosphere in the locker room. Right. But there's very much like a, hey, this is how I'm keeping my lights on. This is how I'm paying my bills. This is providing food that goes into my kids' mouths, right? Right. Like, at Bandy, I think we had maybe, uh, maybe four or five dudes that had that had guys on the team, that had kids on the team at the time. Right. Like, now, I'm, I'm 22, 23. There's also a 29-year-old, there's a 30-year-old, there's a 28-year-old, two, three kids in elementary school. Like, this is how he's providing for his family. So, like, we can joke, but at the end of the day, it's about him 
provided for his loved ones. And so it's that too. Uh, but it never it never interferes. Like a perfect perfect example is like the, the defensive line room. We're all competing to be on the field and go out there and show what we got so we can all get paid. Mm-hmm. But there's never any like hostility, no animosity, no figure it out on your own, bro. There's no like bad blood between anyone. Right. Right? Which is super fortunate for me at least because I hear guys coming from other teams being like it's not like that sometimes they let the rookies figure it out for themselves and then once you make it then they bring you in so at, at Minnesota from day one it was hey man uh, this is how you do this this is how you do this this is how we do this this is how we do this we have a standard of excellence here in this position group and you need to get with it or, or get or get going and and that was that and so it was get on the train so I got on the train and it's been working out for me ever since yeah, it has. You've uh, slowly, slowly worked yourself up from, you know, special teams player to third down player to getting on the field during nickel packages to even starting some games, right? You started how many games last year? Yeah, I went from being cut my first year to starting five, six games last year. Yeah, that's insane. Five games last year. There's a lot of people who, you know, once that happens, they give up and they don't they don't go anymore, but you, you kept going. Like, I mean, granted, you have some great – defensive players with you. You had um, Limbaugh Joseph, strong man. He plays interior. Then you had 97. I forgot his name. Um, Everson Griffin. Everson Griffin. All pro. All baller. Yeah. All, all, yeah. Stud. You got Anthony Barr. Granted, he plays behind you, but he still knows how to get after the quarterback. I mean, uh-huh. you Daniel had... Hunter, up and coming star. Yeah. He was a pro bowler last year. Should have been the year before that as well. And then when I got here, uh, B-Rob was here who was the, the elder statesman of the group, who was a technician in and of itself. Any technique that coach was trying to convey, B-Rob was the teach tape for for the defensive ends. And so my group, when I came in, was stacked. And so it was it was one of those things where I had to, I had a couple of moments of like, like where do I fit in? How can I squeeze? How can I get in? Like, where, where do I fit? Like, this is all a lot. Uh, and it got to me. And I feel like personally, that's one of the reasons why I ended up getting cut because I was too busy worrying about where do I fit in rather than just doing my best and let me slot into place naturally. Right. And so my second year, that was my mindset. I was like, I'm going to go out here and be the best me and coach is going to figure out where, and the coaches are going to figure out where I belong. And that's where it came out to. Uh, my second year was purely special teams. I think I got like six total snaps on defense. And then my third year came in and rotated in like at a steady rate on defense. And then because it's the NFL, people get hurt. Um, I mean, Ev went out uh, with a personal problem for five, six weeks. And then because I had kept preparing and kept working, uh, the coaches felt comfortable with me, like, taking that starting spot for those five games. And I was able to do some good with it. Oh, yeah. You were getting pressures, a couple sacks, batted balls, you know, the combo games. You know, you're doing what you got to do. I mean, sometimes the stuff that, you know, we do as defensive linemen or outside linebackers in the right system doesn't always show up on the stat sheet, but damn it, you know, it affects the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of, like, let's branch away from football again towards the end. Like, I've noticed that, you know, you continue, like, I know life is all about growing, but you continuously grow, like, every time I talk to you, every time I'm looking at something. Dude, you, like, you're a big, like, chef now. I expect to see you on the Food Network in, like, three years competing for, like, a chef job. Where did that come about? Um... My mom and grandma are amazing cooks, and so just that just rubbed off on me watching them do what they do, uh, so on and so forth. And so it just came about, uh, you know, Vanderbilt, Vandy, 
the, the Vandy card, um, mail swipes, uh, healthy options are few and far between. So you got you got to get it how you fit in. So me taking that mindset into the league, even though I got a little bit of change now, uh, I was not my best me. And so it took a year for me to like learn like how to eat effectively to, to then have good results on the field. And so that's how it really began. And so after that, I've just been trying new things, cooking, so on and so forth, sharing it with, with my neighbors. Uh, I just moved into a new apartment building. It turns out my next-door neighbor is a real chef. Oh, wow. Like, a, uh, like an executive chef. And so she's going to help me make some things, too, uh, how to temper chocolate when I'm making brownies and stuff like that. So, like, I'm super excited to start, like, learning stuff from her uh, to try to, like, elevate my games to the next level. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, my wife is going to be spoiled because I'm cooking gourmet dishes all day, every day. As soon as she get home from work, five course meals gonna be ready. <laughs> I don't blame you. Happy wife, happy life. Sorry, too. So you you always are talking about you know your connections and the people you talk to and you know just having a, a big network. How how big is your network and how does it benefit you? Um, it's it's a lot bigger than even I know. Um, I have a horrible memory. Um, but I'm, I'm always super nice to everyone, not with the intent that somehow it's going to work out for me, but, uh, it, it like people remember nice people, right? And right. like, it doesn't hurt you, it doesn't take anything away from you to, to give someone else a smile or keep a smile on your face, interact, uh, with a niceness, but me just going out and living my best life when I was a quote unquote nobody, seventh round pick, practice squad dude, now that I'm making plays, and stepping on the field more, those same people who I interacted with when I was a uh, seventh round pick practice squad guy now coming to me saying, hey, we remember you from when we met you at this one event for the Vikings. Do you mind coming and working with us and being someone that can endorse our product? And I'm like, sure, no problem. Or like, hey, do you remember me from this thing? I now am charge of marketing for this big company. You left a lasting impression on me. Do you mind stopping by so we can talk about maybe a potential endorsement? And so, like if there was just something I could pass on to people listening, just like just be nice to everyone. It doesn't take anything from you, and it could eventually, in some way or shape, form, or fashion, come back and benefit benefit you down the road later. And so that's that's just how it's been working out for me recently. Yeah, I mean, I heard this saying when I was younger: the bigger your network, the more your net worth. So I mean, saying hi to everybody, you know, treating everybody the same, whether it's you know the custodian or you know. It's the general manager. As long as you know treating everybody with the same level of respect, things will spill back over to you. So big facts, big facts. I kind of want to get into you know a little bit of pop culture. Like, what, where's Stephen Weatherly with um, you know politics? What's your view on politics? Are you are you voting this year? Have you voted before? Yeah, I mean your your vote counts. Uh, it matters way more in your local elections uh, <laughs> than your. Uh, in, your, in like the, the presidential election, I guess you could say, if you're comparing the two, uh, your senators, your governors, your mayors, state reps, so on and so forth, they have a lot of power. You may think it doesn't, and it's just about the president, but uh, power is pretty spread out. If you can control your state on uh, the local level, then they can have a big say-so moving forward. Uh, and those laws and politics will affect you sooner than a presidential bill uh, can, right? And some of the things on a local level can kind of protect you from something that the president could potentially do, 
right? And so uh, I feel like a lot of people's perceptions about politics are kind of backwards. Like, oh, it's all about the president, and it's going to be a trickle-down effect. And that is not it at all. It's about building your way up to it. Uh, and so that's my whole thing now. Uh, being from Georgia, I always have to mail in my vote. Um, but I'm very much uh, trying to get more people involved and stuff like that. Um, but no, like a lot of things, I, I don't know what politics is. Too, too, too binary, it's too left-right, it's too black-white, it's, it's too yes-no, like it's, it's too much. There's, there's a lot of gray area, right? right? There's a lot of mixing of ideas that should happen, that could happen, but won't happen um, because they believe it can't. Um, I think we need to move past this two-party system. Uh, it's not beneficial for anyone because me personally, um, I'm right smack dab in the middle on certain things. I'm I'm more left on a lot of things, and sometimes it would shock some people. But I surprised like to contrary to belief, I think right on a couple of things as well. Um, but like that's what needs to happen. We need to have more people come in that have more like holistic ideas and not just like I am traditionally left or I'm traditionally right on all topics. That doesn't benefit us as a group. Right. That's interesting. I never really, like, I had that same mindset you were talking about earlier where, you know, it's not really going to, you know, affect me. It's all about the president. So, you know, lately I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and, you know, they always have their input on the presidential election and who's running, this, that, and the third. And I've been super interested. I really like Kamala Harris as far as, you know, presidential. I like Bernie. I think I, uh, I, I've i heard some stuff about him before, but now that I'm doing my own research, Bernie's dope. Have you heard about Andrew Yang yet? They one of the uh, Democratic people running? Yeah, he's like, uh, he's big, big businessman, and he wants to, you know, do this U.S. thing where, you know, because, like, in the future, as you know, technology is, like, advancing, and all the, you know, the, the the middle class to lower socioeconomic youth, you know, black families who work those manual labor jobs, those jobs will be, you know, kind of extinct because of the technology and the way it's advancing. And he's thinking about, you know, doing this, like, thing for the U.S. where, you know, these families or everyone, basically, I think he said everyone, I'm not sure if he, you know, specified it, but they get, like, a, a monthly allowance to help them better themselves and that way they can go out and get an education and then that way which could further along them in the job force, and I think he's pretty cool. You should look him up. All right, that works for me. I mean, I like that idea. It's all about um, increasing your your human capital. Or human capital development is key, and so I mean, that's part of the nonprofit thing that I was kind of working on when I was at Vanderbilt in the class, creating funding for nonprofits in the twenty first century. Just about it's about people, companies are going to keep trying to increase their, their profit margins. So right. they believe that laying off a group of people and bringing in machines is going to do that. That doesn't help those families, right? If those families end up being laid off two in, the communities they, in the communities they come from, become low-income communities, well, the, all the factors that affect low SES communities are going to come into that community. That's never anything good. Uh, but what if we can get those same families uh, into jobs that are coming into the community, 21st century jobs, uh, and get them prepared for it so they can compete against uh, fresh college graduates, then there's a chance that those communities won't become low SES communities and those factors won't hit them and they can still have a chance to, to, to grow and still move forward as a, as a community. It doesn't matter what color the community is because it affects everyone. Unemployment, a, a, a company, a business owner just sees profit margins. If this has any lay off 100 people to make more money, I don't care which hundred it is, y'all guys to go. Right. Uh, 
But if we can get those people and get them and retool their skill set, get them back in the job market as quick as possible, exactly like this candidate you're saying, that's his platform, and I'm all about it. But at the same time, why can't other people adopt that platform, right? Like, why is it just that's that one person? Why can't someone come in and say, I'm taking the best ideas from these 15 people, and we're going to run with it, and that's going to be our thing, right? Why is it just one? Why can't you have two or three? Why can't you say, I want to do that and this? I think people are just, you know, afraid to think out of the box. They've seen so many people do it one way for so long, and they think that's the automatic way to to get it done, you know what I'm saying? Coach says, okay, need the long arm stab and chop rip and go outside, but, you know, if I see an inside gap, I'm definitely going to try and take an easier way to get to the quarterback, you know what I'm saying? It's just, I think people are so stuck on, you know, past presidential, like, candidates and people that have actually been in office and seen the way they run things, and they think, you know, that's automatically the way to do it, which it isn't, and I understand why they do that, because, you know, sometimes, you know, repeating it is successful, but other times, you know, we get stuck in a rut, and I feel like we're kind of stuck in a rut as we speak. I completely agree. I feel like one of the most, like, detrimental things to, to human to humanity is the phrase, well, we've always done it this way. Right. Like that immediately nukes new ideas from coming in. Um, and I feel like we should explore and, and, like, test new theories and in the act of, like, prime example, right? So one of the things I've been doing a lot is arguing abstract ideas with people. Flat Earth, aliens, the whole nine. Any conspiracy theory, I will argue, I will research it, argue it with you, just, just so you can think differently. Do I believe it with my whole heart? No. But, like, there's a quote that says, like, the mark of intelligence is to, like, argue an idea and not accept it as truth, right? And I, like, that's Aristotle. I paraphrase it, but that's what it is, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. You need to be able to go out there and understand and get your head around certain concepts but not hold it as your own personal truth just so that you can stimulate new ideas and new thoughts. So what if this? Hear me out. I'm out here arguing that flat earth is a thing, right? right. What does everyone do? You're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. Even NASA, Neil deGrasse Tyson is out here doing all this stuff calling everyone stupid, which doesn't benefit anyone, right? <laughs> it's like, if you spent less time up there on your horse and down here and just like, all right, let, let's humor you for a second. And you went out and using science decided I'm going to disprove all your points. And in the active view, researching and disproving it, you stumble across a new scientific discovery that has nothing to do with flat earth, right? right. Maybe you finally discovered the cure for cancer, right? In your efforts of disproving flat earth theory, wasn't it beneficial? Yeah. If you find a new medicine, at a, uh, a new way to develop a medicine that makes it 75% cheaper for people that need it, wasn't it worth it, right? Yeah. That's just not him. That's any scientist. So, like, take the time to at least hear these wild theories. It ain't like you're doing anything anyway, right? So, like, explore these theories. Test them out. Try to debunk them. And in the act of you debunking these wild theories, you can stumble across new scientific discoveries. We, as humans, get better. Right. Not just you saying, oh, that's a stupid idea, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb. That doesn't help anyone, right? But you're like, all right, give me all your ideas, give me all your theories, I personally don't agree, and I'm going to go through and, and use science and debunk all of them, and then we're going to move forward from there. And as soon as you get done with Flat Earth, I have a hundred other ones that we can go through. The moment you get done with one, I'm going to have two more for you. Right. We're going to go through it. And after that, that's, that's the end of it. Right? Like, let's move forward. Let's let's think of new ways of doing things, right? Let's think of new ideas, new topics. Let's stimulate new growth. Let's find new ways of doing things. Let's do something 
Just doing this now, we are not at the pinnacle. Like we have not reached the top of the mountain. We've reached the summit, but like we, we haven't reached the top. I definitely agree. There's so much. There's the potential for you know, America, the United States is it's, sure. it's endless. Sure. It's endless. But you know, just like you're saying, you know, this group think thing where everyone thinks the same is very detrimental. And yeah, it's just I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but it's it's terrible. Uh, I kind of want to get into like your your degree and what you want to do like after football is done. What is what is what what's your focus for after football when that's done in three to five years? Uh, three to five years after playing. Yeah. Uh, be a stay at home trophy dad. <laughs> okay. Put on my put on my jean shorts and go to all the PTA meetings. <laughs> okay, let's say you know. You haven't had a kid yet, and you know you, oh, need, you need to stop immediately. Um, no, <laughs> um, nah. Uh, I would go into the nonprofit sector. Uh, I would want to do more work uh, with uh, uh, relationship. Uh, like I, I really think this whole thing, like uh, making a program that helps to, to to fortify the basically piggybacking off the One Love Foundation, which is all about. Uh, uh, learning healthy relationships through education, mm-hmm. right? Um, kind of something similar to that, if not working with them directly, um, doing something similar to that. Um, I think we, as a group, uh, have gotten to this horrible like thing where sex is a taboo topic for younger people. Granted, yes, a fifth grader should probably know the ins and outs of like sexual intercourse, we should introduce the topics a lot sooner because if you don't do it as a parent, who do you leave that up to? You don't want the, you don't want the internet to do it because that is never a good place for <laughs> the internet to teach your child about sex. Exactly. You don't want your 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 child's peers to do it because that is the deaf leading the blind, right? And so then what what else needs a pop culture, which has been proven to be full of nothing but negative stereotypes when it comes to sex and relationships around sex and how it, how it fits in, right? Right. And so developing a program that will help parents slowly introduce it into uh, their children's lives so they can learn about effective consent and what a relationship feels like and, and how sex uh, incorporates into a healthy relationship and how it should be a byproduct of a healthy relationship and not the overall objective of a healthy relationship, if that makes sense. Right, I get it. Uh, and so that is the realm I would work with, along with uh, the thing I said earlier about the uh, uh, human capital development and uh, taking recently laid off unemployed individuals, retooling their skill set, putting back in the job market as quick as possible. I feel like those two things, along with being a stay-at-home trophy dad, uh, <laughs> is my trifecta, um, and that will keep me plenty busy until I turn 60, which I will then begin to direct uh, scary movies. Okay, I see you have it all planned out, all laid out. Uh, you know, as I really, I enjoyed this interview. I mean, we talked about some good things. We actually had a conversation. Most of the time, it's me, you know, asking questions and listening, which I don't have a problem with, but I do enjoy talking back and, you know, saying what's on my brain, too, so I appreciate you letting me do that. I appreciate you believing in me and believing in my skill set as a creator, as a football player, as a person. You've always been there for me no matter what it's been. And yeah, I just enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah, my job. <laughs>
And uh, as I end, I always do this thing with my people. It's just like, it's an opportunity for you to say what's on your mind. What, what are you working on currently, like as we speak? But, you know, what do we look out from Stephen Webley in the future? What do you have planned as far as, you know, football, life goals? Is there a special lady in your life? Anything you want to say, it's your chance to put it out now. yeah man that was good i uh i am definitely gonna have you back on later once you've blown up and reached the potential you have the opportunity to reach which will probably be in a you know a couple of months maybe a year i'll give it a year top a couple of months at the minimum and yeah i hope you have a great rest of the day and thank you again bro no, thank you for having me. Of course. Peace. Peace.